We've been looking at how the Christians in Acts have been proclaiming boldly the gospel and have been seeing the Spirit demonstrate the authenticity of their message through a number of different uh, ways. And what one of the other threads that we really haven't pointed to, drawn any attention to, is when we see an advancement of the gospel mission, we then see a corresponding uh, ramping up of the opposition against the church and its mission. And this happens over and over and over, and to the point that it's, it's obvious Luke wants us to see this. And the first time we see advancement in the gospel mission is Pentecost, and we see 3,000 plus who come to faith in Christ. Uh, pretty soon after that, we see a paralyzed man healed, and that generates a whole bunch of other interest in the gospel. People are listening, people are coming uh, to faith in Christ. And at, at, on the heels of that uh, gospel advancement, we hear about opposition. Acts chapter 4, for instance, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So that's the first opposition, and all it includes is incarceration. They just, they just take them in, put them in a, a jail cell for a while, they question them, tell them to shut up, and they won't, okay? So then the gospel advances more. And you, hear, you see it described there in that verse 4 of chapter 4. Then there's a second advancement, which comes on the heels of Ananias and Sapphira, who are uh, part of the church, and they are pretending to be something that they're not. They're uh, conniving and, and trying to, to, to fool the church into thinking that they're more generous than they really are. And in that moment, at least, God doesn't always do this to every hypocrite in the church, but uh, in that moment, uh, they experience judgment and they drop dead. And this is Acts chapter 5. And that results in advancement of the gospel mission. Luke describes it in uh, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then we see opposition. So that very next verse, Acts 5, verse 17, or, or a couple of verses later, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. So you see advancement and then you see opposition. Now this time they're incarcerated and they're flogged. So they take a stick and they beat it on the back of their bare backs and that, that's sort of this ramping up, right? You see incarceration, then you see actual corporal punishment, which results in a whole other third advancement of, of the gospel. Part, part of that comes from some controversy that happens within the church, and the church works out that controversy, and there's a new ministry that, that comes out of that. These deacons are caring for the widows, and the apostles are continuing to preach the gospel and to do that prayerfully. And you see the gospel advance. And so like Acts 6-7 says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So that's Luke's best report up to this point. 
that not only is there addition of people to the church, there's multiplication of people to the church. And some of the toughest, toughest skeptics and critics of the church, the very Jewish priests, Jewish leaders, some of them are hearing the gospel and trusting in Christ and becoming Christians and becoming a part of the church. Now, when things are going that well, then the opposition heats up again. And this is the fiercest opposition that, that we'll actually see in the book, actually someone losing their life for the gospel. Now, again, this is part of how God moves the mission forward. Jesus explained this to the apostles when He was training them, that there's going to be opposition and that, in fact, God will use the opposition for His own purposes. Uh, places like Matthew chapter 10, this is, this is, again, Jesus training the apostles for these, these kinds of moments of opposition. Matthew 10 Verse 16, Jesus says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Doesn't that sound fun? Anybody want to be a sheep in the midst of a bunch of wolves? Wow, no. But then he says, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to the courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak of what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So see what Jesus is doing there. He's saying there's going to be opposition, but God's going to use that opposition because He's going to cause you to to be standing before kings and judges and all these different kind of court appearances, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you words to say in those moments, and that's actually going to be an opportunity, that opposition will actually be an opportunity for advancement of the gospel. Now, this opposition comes in different forms. Uh, Jesus actually talks about all these forms in Matthew chapter 10, for instance. Uh, but I was reading in a book called The Insanity of Obedience by Nick Ripkin, and he he kind of explains three different types of persecution. So one is what he calls top-down. So that would be state-sponsored, where actually the, 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 the general citizenry is not necessarily against the church and against Christianity, but the state is. And so they're making it illegal to be a Christian. He actually says that the gospel actually advances rather quickly in a state-sponsored kind of opposition because the church, church planting movement, house church movement, oftentimes moves, moves pretty fast in state-sponsored kind of, uh, of persecution. Now, one example would be like North Korea. Right? It's against the lobby of Christian. The government finds out you're a Christian. Uh, they'll, they'll come and, and take you away and incarcerate you at the very least. Now, the next level, he says, is like a state allowed, but a, an ideological partner, right? So the state on paper in public is not saying it's against the law, to be a Christian, but there's an ideological partner. There's a group of people in the in the, the community in the country that are persecuting Christians, and the state looks the other way because the state would rather there not be Christians, but doesn't want to have to state sponsor persecution. So you see this in places like India, or sometimes you'll see uh, Hindus attacking Muslims and Christians, and the state looking the other way. And India saying, oh, no, it's fine to be whatever you want to be in our country, but they won't do anything about the persecution. So that would be a state-allowed 
with an ideological partner. And then the worst is what Ripken calls bottom-up. This is when your own friends and family are persecuting you. Oftentimes, these also include state-sponsored persecution and ideological partners, and so you, you, you end up with all three oftentimes with a bottom-up. These are places like Indonesia, right, where, where everyone is trying to figure out who are the Christians and turn them in so that they can get rid of Christianity. How is the church supposed to bear up under that kind of pressure, that kind of persecution? But we, we actually just read it in Matthew 10, right? Jesus says it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, church, is going to give you the power that you need to stand up under whatever pressure, persecution that you have to go through. And so we, we see this in this passage about Stephen. Stephen is described as one who's filled with the Spirit. And so that's what we want to talk about today. What, what, how does one get filled with the Spirit? And then if I am filled with the Spirit, then what will I be like? I think Stephen's story answers both of those questions. How do I get filled with the Spirit and what will I be like once I am filled with the Spirit? So again, Acts 6, verse 8. Luke describes Stephen, says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So this is Stephen. Who's Stephen? Right? You're thinking, is he one of the 12 apostles? No, actually not. He's not. He's not. He's an ordinary Christian. He's an ordinary Christian. Now, the, the apostles are ordinary Christians too. That, actually, that, that's what's how they're described as unschooled, ordinary men. But, but Stephen's not even one of those apostles. He's an ordinary Christian who's been serving in the widow's ministry. Right back in the uh, beginning of... Uh, of Acts 6, verse 5, we, we talked about this last week, where it's describing these seven men that were chosen to do the widow's ministry. It says, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to list the other six. But Luke gives more description to Stephen than he does the other, the other six, partly because he knows Stephen's going to pop back up in the story. Right? And, and he's saying that, that Stephen is full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, it says he's full of grace and full of power. He's full of a lot of stuff. It's good stuff, right? Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. I think Luke's trying to tell us something, right? He's showing us something about the person of, of Stephen. And, and I think it, it informs us about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. So let's look at these, both verse 5, verse 8 full of faith, full of Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. So full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now faith, what's faith? Faith is trusting in or yielding to God. Right? That's what faith is. And this is how you get full of the Holy Spirit. You trust in, you yield to. The initiation of God 
the initiation of His Spirit. And when you do that, it opens up the Spirit's work in your life, and you become one who is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, the Spirit is always present. The Spirit does not come and go. It's not like He's here one day, He's not here the other. He's always present. We know that from places like Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he's telling the Ephesians, remember when you heard the gospel? Remember when you believed and you exercised saving faith in that gospel? When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit does not leave. He's there from that moment of conversion, all the days of your life, in this life, and the life to come. You're sealed, right? But those who are sealed can now participate with the Holy Spirit, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they also become filled. The difference between being sealed and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Sealed is something the Holy Spirit does. You have nothing to do with it. He does it to you. Filled, you have some part in it. Now, He's certainly doing all the heavy lifting, right? But you have some part in it. You're cooperating with it. You're trusting in, you're faithing in God, and that is enabling this moment where you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same book, Ephesians, Paul talks about this, Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which just means kind of immoral living, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. It's a command. It's an imperative. He's saying, Christian, obey this command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that must mean we have some part in that. Not in the sealing by the Holy Spirit, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he uses the drinking of alcohol as an illustration for it, which I think is, this is brilliant. I love, I love this. Right? I don't really think he wanted to talk about alcohol, although it does speak to alcohol and says you shouldn't get drunk. So if you're wondering, is it okay for Christians to get drunk? It's not. And it says it right here, Ephesians 5.18. Right? Now, what, what he's saying is, don't, lose, don't get drunk with alcohol. Why? Because you lose control. And when you lose control, you do stupid things you would have never done had you been sober. Those things he uses a catchword, debauchery, kind of immoral living. Right? You lose control. He says, but instead of losing control to alcohol, lose control to the Holy Spirit. Let Him have control. Let, let Him lead your life. Let Him lead you to do things you would have never done had you not been filled with the Holy Spirit. And that will actually lead to good things. It will lead to life. Paul talks about it in different ways. So he also talks about it in Romans 8 where he says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. Christian, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And when you do that, it leads to life and peace. It opens up your life to the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says it this, this way, in the, ne- kind of in, in the negative way, do not quench the Spirit. 
again, he, he seems to indicate that we have some part in whether or not we're filled with the Spirit or we quench the Spirit. If you'll memorize a verse today, there's one right there. That's a verse. Do not quench the Spirit. You just memorized a verse. Good job. Way to go. Take that with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, Stephen is one who doesn't quench the Spirit. He's full of faith, so he's trusting in, he's yielding in, and as he's trusting God, he yields to God, he yields to the initiation of the Holy Spirit, it opens up the work of the Spirit in his life, and he is full of the Spirit. Now, what does one look like, what does one behave like if they're full of the Spirit? I think a lot of us, we start to think, well, they must sound like TV preachers, and they say, glory to God a lot, right? I don't really see that in Stephen's life. I don't really see him behaving that way. It must be something else. It is. One who's filled with the Spirit is full of grace and power, right? Full of grace and power from verse 8. On the one hand, Stephen is kind. He's gracious. He's participating in the widow's ministry, okay? Think about this. They, they were told, pick seven men who would be good at this, who have character, who know Jesus, who are full of spirit. And the first one they think of, Stephen. He would be great caring for the widows in our congregation. And at the same time, he's a man of great power. And when the opportunity comes in the, in the synagogue to stand courageously for the gospel, he does it, Right? I'm going to use this phrase that I stole from a book title. Uh, I haven't read the book, don't really plan to, but it's by Brene Brown. I don't don't give her credit for this title, but a strong back and a soft front. This is what you see in Stephen's life. Strong back, he's courageous, he's forthright, truth teller, but at the same time, soft front. He's he's kind, he's tender, so much so he's he's willing to meet the, the needs of of the widows in his, in his church. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen, they are probably uh, Hellenists. They're Greek-speaking, Greek, more, more culturally Greek Jews that, that gather in this synagogue. This is probably Stephen's synagogue. These are probably people he grew up with, people that he had gone to synagogue with. He knew them well. He's probably still going to that synagogue. They get in a conversation about the gospel it starts to get a little heated, and you, ex- you see this bottom-up persecution. These are people that he knows who then turn him into the authorities, and they think they're doing God and their society a favor by turning Stephen in. And they say two charges that are said in different ways, but they say he's speaking against the holy place, that's the temple. And he's speaking against the law. And then they say it a different way. They say he's speaking against God and speaking against Moses. And these are serious charges, especially if you're speaking against God. What they're saying is this this man is a blasphemer, and that's worthy of death in their structure. So they're not just looking for a parking ticket here for Stephen. They're not looking for a little slap on the wrist, a little flogging. They're looking for him to be killed, and they know it. And again, they think they're doing God a service, and they're doing the community a service by taking this guy before the authorities and doing whatever it takes to get him prosecuted. 
Um, and so Stephen's response is most of chapter 7, which I'm not going to go into. It's a very long sermon. It's the longest sermon of Acts. Uh, and you ought to go back and look at it. The boy has read his Bible. He knows his Bible, backwards and forwards. And he does a beautiful, just overarching uh, storyline of the nation of Israel. He talks about Abraham, the patriarchs. He talks about Moses. He talks about David. He talks about the temple. He talks about some of the prophets. And it's a beautiful, beautiful overview. And I'm going to skip it, okay? I had a whole page in my notes last night, and I was like, no, I don't have time to do that. So I want to encourage you to go back and read it. But what he does do is in the midst of all that talk about the Old Testament and the overarching history is he talks about the gospel in the midst of that. And then his big finish is chapter 7, verse 51. So we've jumped over to 7. He says, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, one of the threads in the sermon is the ongoing rejection of Israel, of God, and of the messengers that he sends. And so Stephen uses this prophetic language that's in the Old Testament. He calls them stiff-necked, which is a picture of an animal that is stubborn and won't do what its master is trying to get it to do. And it's used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. And then uncircumcised in your heart and ears. It's saying you're not willing to allow God to do the spiritual surgery necessary on your heart, therefore to reconcile you and make you right with God. And that all the messengers that God had sent to get them ready for Jesus, they had persecuted. And then when Jesus showed up, they didn't just persecute him, they murdered him. And Stephen, with great courage, confronts them with these realities, all while having the face of an angel. He has a strong back and a soft front. Truth can be delivered with strength, but also with love, if one is empowered by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see that, and we think, well, surely that went well, and they received it well, and in fact, they don't. In fact, they lose it. They become so enraged that they just lose control. Verse 54 of chapter 7 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. They're not in the mood for theological discussion. They become so enraged now that they are totally blinded to anything Stephen's. They really hadn't heard anything Stephen said. And, and as he experiences that on earth, he then sees a vision from heaven. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is again, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So, so here, he, he's looking at these corrupt, insecure, self-seeking leaders that are getting so angry at him, 
And as he's experiencing that, he then is experiencing in heaven, he gets a vision of God. And what he sees in that vision of God is not just like a bright, warm light that's kind of calling him home, making him feel warm and fuzzy. What he sees in the vision of God is not the Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus all kind of hanging out in their sort of pluralistic religious world and inviting all their followers to come and hang out with them for eternity. What he sees is Jesus. That's what he sees. He says, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is cosmic King Jesus. Jesus who died, Jesus who three days later rose from the dead, Jesus who ascended into heaven. Remember the ascension? If you were here for Acts chapter 1, when the apostles are standing around Jesus and he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses, the Holy Spirit's going to fill you, and he's going to send you out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and then he ascends. Remember that, Remember that in Acts 1.9? or 1, 9? It says, when he had said these things... And they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's where he went. Now we know. He ascended into heaven. They're like looking, him, looking up at a cloud. Now they know he's at the right hand of the Father. He's the cosmic King Jesus. He tells him in Matthew 28, I have authority over everything, heaven and earth. And he was not kidding. And so Stephen sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? He's, he's standing. Now, this is unique because usually Jesus is sitting. Not because he's lazy, but because his work is finished. The work he accomplished at the cross to pay for sin and to make a way for us to know God and be with him forever, that is finished. And so to show that, he's usually sitting at the right hand of the Father. But in this moment, he stands. And I think he's standing because he's showing that he cares about this moment. That yes, he had trained the apostles to say, you know, opposition is going to come. Some of you are going to give your lives for the gospel. And it's not like he's just kicked back going, yeah, well, here comes the first martyr. No, he's up. And he's letting Stephen know, look, I know this is hard. I know that, that, that what I'm asking of you is, is an incredible sacrifice. But I want you to know, I'm right here. And so here's, here's, here's Stephen. He's got one foot in verse 54, and he's got one foot in verse 55. He's got one foot on the earth where he's seeing these, these corrupt, insecure, self-seeking leaders who, who are a, a, about to completely upend justice to, to try him illegally and, and kill him in an angry mob. And, and, and then he's got verse 55 where he's going, the cosmic king Jesus, the savior king who's now ascended to the right hand of the Father, who has authority over heaven and earth. And he needed this. He needed this encouragement, right? He needed this encouragement. Um, this could really be a moment where he starts to think, did I do the right thing? Did I mess up? Jesus, are you really there? They've never seen anyone die for the faith. Never seen a martyr. They've seen him incarcerated. They've seen him flogged. 
They've seen him rebuked. They've never seen anyone go down. This is the first time somebody's going to give their life for the faith. He needed to see that. But it wasn't just for him. It was also for the church. He says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The church at large needs to hear this too. And so not only does he see it and personally experience it, but he says enough out loud that the church can hear as well. And he says, I see the Son of Man. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. It's actually something that points to the Messiah. And it points to the reality that the Messiah is more than just a human being, but has a cosmic kingdom. And it's over the seen and the unseen. And, and you know, Stephen being so steeped in the Old Testament, that that's, the, that's the first phrase that comes out of his mouth when he sees Jesus at the right hand. He's like, the Son of Man. The thing we've read in the book of Daniel over and over again, that was Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the church needed, they needed to hear that. As they see the, the first one of their own go down for the gospel. Right? Now you would think that this kind of an experience would make Stephen and the church kind of militant. Like it's us versus them. We're the subjects of the king and those are the subjects of Satan or whatever, right? But that's not what his vision instills in him. That's not, that's not the fruit that's produced in him. This is a pretty amazing moment. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see what he's doing there? You see how he's got one foot on earth, he's got one foot in heaven? One foot on earth, he's seeing the, the corrupt, the, the insecure, the self-seeking leaders who are throwing stones at him, bludgeoning him to death by an angry mob. And he's, he's saying to them, or, or praying to God, actually, forgive them, don't hold this against them. And at the same time, he's saying, Lord, receive my spirit. Regardless of what's happening in this world, I'm going with you. I'm going to go down to the last breath. I'm going to submit to you as my Savior King, Jesus. I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to shut up till my last breath. And he does that because he sees King Jesus. And he does that because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He continues to his very last breath to have this strong back, but this soft front. He gives grace to his persecutors. Now, there's a lot of parallels between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. I don't know if you noticed that. You've got a phony trial. You've got bribed witnesses. You've got Stephen saying, receive my spirit. Jesus, Jesus prays that. right? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, you, you, you've got Stephen say, don't hold the sin against them. And you have Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
But one thing that's not a parallel, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stephen doesn't say that because he's not forsaken. And he's not forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. That Jesus died a death for sin, even though he himself was not a sinner. And so as he experienced that death as a sinner, he feels a separation between he and his father because of that sin. And Stephen, because he's trusted in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, when he looks up to heaven, he doesn't see forsaking. He sees that Jesus is waiting, standing with open arms. Come, I want to receive you into heaven. And so you wonder, can, can God really answer this prayer that, Jesus, that, that, that Stephen is praying, right? He's saying, don't hold this sin against them. In fact, he can answer this prayer. But he's had to pay a high price in order to answer the prayer. That God's own son has had to be crucified on the cross so that angry, insecure, corrupt, self-seeking people could be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God. Now, we know at least one takes him up on his offer. It's Saul, who eventually becomes Paul in the book of Acts, He's actually going to be the most prominent character in the book of Acts. And we'll hear some things, more things about him. But listen to how Saul, who will become Paul, describes himself in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The Apostle Paul, too, experienced that grace that comes through Christ's death on the cross. And Stephen, he knows he would be throwing the rocks, too, if it wasn't for the grace of God. He's he's an ordinary Christian who by grace has been saved, who his eyes were open to the truth of the gospel. He believed, and when he believed, the Spirit sealed him. And as he's grown and matured in his faith, the Spirit, Spirit filled him. He, he knows it's all grace. And so this morning, if you're here today and, and you were thinking, I think I'm going to go to church for a little religious pick-me-up. I need a little shot of self-esteem from God, whoever he is up there. I'm sure he loves me and just want to feel better about me and feel better about life. That is not the Jesus that we are offering you this morning. We are offering a Jesus who is so worthy and who absolutely loves you. But he is so worthy and holy that he is worth giving everything in response to his grace, even your own life. We're offering you the, the Jesus that, that Stephen followed. And so I, I would encourage you to put your trust in that Jesus. Now, what is he going to call you to? What is, what is he going to call you to, to, to and put you through? I don't know. But I know that by God's grace and the power of his spirit, you, you will be able to stand in chapter, uh, verse 54 and 55 as, as you behold the sufferings of this world and you behold the cosmic king Jesus. And you will not back down. You will not let up. You will not shut up. Because of the worthiness of King Jesus and the 
powerful spirit that dwells in you. And, and it will form in you this ability to have a strong back and a, a soft front. So those of us that are Christ's followers, we, we constantly are in need of a reminder of both the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. Right? We need to be reminded of the work of Christ, to, to remember that the, the Christ is at the right hand of God. He's ascended there. He's the cosmic king. He has authority over heaven and earth. That's the Jesus we're singing to. That's the Jesus that, that is, is answering our prayers. Not, not the, 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 the Jesus that's, that's walking around on dusty roads in Palestine. Now, it's good to reflect on that Jesus and think about that Jesus, and, but know that that Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And He has absolute authority over everything, governments and nature and people, and He, he has absolute authority over the unseen, over the demonic, over, over everything. We need to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that while we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it's, it's on us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit such that we become filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to come each, each week yielding and trusting in a fresh way. He's always working. Right? Don't, don't, don't get tripped up by sort of the false familiar. Right? Sometimes we get tripped up where we come to church week in, week out, and we're like, okay, another church service, another gospel message. It's just kind of the same thing. No, it's not. Every week, it's different. God's doing something different. He's doing something different in you. He's doing something different in our congregation. He, he's advancing the mission. And so don't, don't allow yourself to be lulled to sleep. I think this is one of the ways we quench the Spirit. And it happens to me too, okay? This is, I'm having to preach to myself. It's not just another Sunday. It's not just another sermon. God's Holy Spirit is active. He's present. He's doing something new in me, in you, in our congregation. Let, let's not miss it. And let's ask for His filling. I think Jesus teaches this. Like places like Luke 11, He says, uh, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So I don't think He's saying ask for a sealing of the Holy Spirit. That happens at conversion. He's saying ask for a filling of the Holy Spirit. This is another way to communicate your need for God. So I found myself more praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit, waking up in the morning, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I yield to you. I trust in you. I don't know what this day is going to hold. I don't know what you have for me, God, but, but fill me with your Holy Spirit. I, I want to know you personally, intimately, in a greater way today. If I'm going into something that, that seems difficult, that's something I can't figure out, something I'm afraid of, I, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask to fill, uh, fill the church with, the, with, the, with its Holy Spirit. And so let's, let's pray that. Let, let's be reminded of who Christ is. Let's, let's ask the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let's ask others to pray for us that that would happen. That's partly why we're back in the back, right, saying, come, come get prayer. That's partly why I say, pray for me. And I don't understand it all, but, but God does something as we pray for one another. And, and, and He meets those prayers with a, with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. So if you feel you're in a place of apathy or where temptation's got you by the throat and you just can't seem to break free, ask a brother or sister or come back for prayer. We'll ask God's Spirit to do what only He could do and, the, and what we've failed at doing 
as we've tried in our own strength. We're reminded of these realities every time we come to this table. We think about the night on which Jesus is, is betrayed. He's about to be denied. He, 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 he's looking at what's going on, on in earth, <laughs> and it is not positive. And then he takes bread and he breaks it. He gives it to his disciples. He says, take, eat. This is, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As he's tearing that bread, he's, he's knowing the very next day his own flesh is going to be torn. And why does he do that? Because he understands the cosmic implications of what that's going to result in. He speaks of that when he takes the cup and he blesses it and he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of of sins. Right? He knows what it's like to, to stand in verse 54 and stand in verse 55, right? He's to look at, at what's going on in earth and know that he's going to have his flesh torn on, a, on a, a rugged cross, but to also know that is going to have cos, uh, cosmic implications, that the pouring out of his blood is going to result in the forgiveness of sin and that those that receive that forgiveness of sin will be reconciled with God and will be with God in eternity. And so even though he knows it is going to be horrific as he dies at the hands of angry, corrupt, insecure, self-seeking leaders, he knows the result is going to be a cosmic kingdom that's going to result in him having victory over sin, death, and hell. And so we are reminded of these things when we come to this, come to this table. What Christ did in the here and now and uh, in this earth where he suffered and identified with all the suffering that, that human beings go through. And, and at the same time, that that suffering has meaning and it resulted in a cosmic kingdom. And he actually told the disciples, he says, I want you to do this till I come back. It, it, it's such a, a moment of sort of defiance, right? Of, of looking at what's going to happen on Good Friday and with great faith and absolute certainty. He says that he knows in three days I'm going to raise from the dead and in 40 days later I'm going to send to the right hand of God the Father and then I'm going to return. And so we come to this table with those same realities because when we look around our own lives, some of it's just garden variety suffering that we're dealing with and for some of us it's persecution. We're scared to be bold because we know we're going to be looked down on or we're going to be embarrassed. We're going to lose our job. And, and by God's Spirit, we, we are able to stand up and have a strong back. But at the same time, we're able to do that with a soft front. I feel like we're either one or the other. <laughs> when we do this in our own strength, we are either strong-backed and we're like jerks for Jesus or we're just soft front. We're just wimps. And we never speak up. We're never bold because we don't want to be identified with those strong back people that are jerks for, right? You with me? I feel like that's the general, that's sort of the gist of how we feel in New England. We don't want to get put in this camp over here, so we're just going to shut up. Don't, don't allow the culture, don't allow your own fears to do that. And I'm preaching to myself, okay, as well. But to focus on Christ and be filled with the Spirit to such a degree that we will have a strong back, and we will have a soft front. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we give you thanks that you did not back down. That as the scripture says, I think actually Luke writes this, you set your face like flint to go to Jerusalem and to die and to do so in our place and to, so that we could be forgiven and that we could be with you both now and forevermore. And God, just help those realities just sink down in our hearts and our minds. We forget them so easily, Lord, and so we, we, we're so grateful we get to come on a weekly basis and be reminded of these realities, both the suffering, the struggles, and the challenges of this world, but also the cosmic kingdom that you reign supreme over and that we see you as one who is worthy, worthy to be praised and thanked, sung to, obeyed, submitted to, even if it means giving our own lives. So would you come in the power of the Spirit? Would you fill us? Would you encourage us? God, would you correct us? Would you train us? God, would you bless the bread and the cup in these moments where we take it, that, that we would commune with you and we commune with one another, that we love you and we praise you and we declare you as the cosmic king that you are and the sweet Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.